Welcome to McGonigal's Chronicles of Making Montana Connections. I'm Tim McGonigal, anchor, producer, and reporter at KRTV and KXLH, the Montana Television Network CBS stations in Great Falls and Helena. This podcast is about extraordinary people with Montana connections. Some were born here, some have moved here, but all at some point have become a part of the fabric that makes Montana unique and special. So let's begin. David Newman has been reaching for the stars ever since she was a little girl growing up in Helena, Montana. The Capitol High graduate went on to get a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering from the University of Notre Dame, as well as master's degrees and a PhD from MIT, where she's been a faculty member since 1993. Our conversation touched on how growing up in Helena helped shape her passion for space exploration. Her latest venture as director of the prestigious MIT Media Lab, her time as deputy administrator with NASA, her development of a revolutionary biosuit for space exploration, and more. Now, because of scheduling, our time with her was limited, and our interview took place before the recent historic NASA Perseverance rover mission to Mars. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Helena's own Deva Newman. It's, it's kind of fitting that you're on this uh, podcast, you're the first guest on this podcast, uh, because uh, it, it, I can't think of another person better to help launch this podcast. And uh, that is my lame attempt at a space exploration joke. But uh, <laughs> I want to thank you for, for, for taking time out today. And uh, before we get into some of your accomplishments and achievements, uh, I want to go back to where it all began for you. And that is where you were born and raised. You were born and raised in Helena. And uh, can you talk about how growing up in Helena helped uh, shape your interest in science and, and space exploration? Hi, Tim. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Yes, so growing up in Helena, Montana was, you know, was wonderful. I loved, I loved growing up in Montana. It definitely shaped my curiosity, my I had an exploration nature. Um, days were filled with climbing up Mount, Mount Helena and exploring caves and trying not to get into too much trouble. And I think um, also growing up in big sky country, just looking at that, that night sky, which we kind of take for granted, when we were kids, but uh, it was really formative in me to uh, just kind of teach me how to dream and kind of think about what's possible and, you know, what's up there in, in the night sky. And, and uh, then as I grew up in the Apollo era, so that was also very informative to me when we sent NASA sent, you know, people to the moon, but that was for humanity. That was just right. to say, what can we accomplish when we really, you know, put our minds to it? Yeah, and I heard you have the. Even though it was you were very young at the time, you have pretty vivid memories of that Apollo Eleven landing on the moon. What can you, what do you remember about that? Well, I've told the story over and over, so we'll see what I really remember <laughs> from my from my five year old <laughs> self. But the family, you know, the family, the family gathered. I think we had a pretty small little TV in our in our, our den. But um, you know, I knew that this was a really important moment and to 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 take it in. And I was also. Um, Grew up, um, you know, and heard a lot of stories. And my, my father actually helped campaign for Kennedy during the '60s, and so this was the monumental moment. We were we were realizing um, great leadership and JFK's dream, and then NASA. And as I said, it was, it was a proud moment for the U.S. But I think more importantly, it was it was for humanity, really reaching the moon and just um, making sure that you know we don't have limitations. So it always stuck with me as a really important formative lesson in the in the '60s and. Who would have known I would have turned out to be an aerospace engineer and, and making this my career? Right. So it's 
Right. And uh, so uh, we'll get back to that a little bit more about the life as an aerospace engineer. But uh, I know some very exciting news for you. Starting in July, you're going to be the uh, director of the MIT Media Lab. Uh, tell us exactly what exactly is the MIT Media Lab. Uh, the MIT Media Lab is, I think, the most creative, interesting place at, at MIT. It's a, it's a lab that really crosses all the disciplines. So it's made up of designers, artists, scientists, technologists, and we all come together. So it's really a really great model. It's not a siloed disciplinary approach. So it puts everyone together and, and it's really problem focused. So what can we do to impact society through inventing new technologies and experiences? some great examples. So in terms of the, the, the lab focuses on digital technologies. So, you know, right now we're living through um, the health pandemic and how can we have access for all? There's been a huge thrust and huge breakthroughs in learning and education. So how can we serve that to the world? So the Media Lab has been in existence for 36 years and it's always had that mission to try to invent new digital material now uh, biological technologies but it's the technologies and experiences and we know it's about designing and producing for humanity so how can we engage the, the broadest set of folks and so it really is a, a melting pot it's a really incredible lab um, that's how invention and creativity i think are, are spurred we have to also move people's hearts and minds so maybe it's through music or performance that maybe the technologies are in the back so there's a lot of wearable computing, prosthetic inventions that have happened in the, the Media Lab. Um, right now, just launching a very new center for civic communications. That's well, very important. Now we've just gone through an inauguration. We're hopeful for the future. But, but what kind of dialogue are people having? And is everyone included? And are we bringing everyone? We're basically empowering everyone. It's really important in terms of you know, breakthrough technologies. Um, going forward to the future. So those are just a few of the examples. It's a community of 400 amazing people that I'm just thrilled to, to be able to join. It's also a very entrepreneurial spirit. There's been a lot of, a lot of startups and a lot of um, companies that have come out of the, the Media Lab and the alumni. And there's also uh, hundreds of faculty, um, you know, former PhDs from the Media Lab, their faculty all over at our, at our peer institutions and, and all over the world. Right. Well, I know in uh, 2015, you were named deputy director at NASA, first woman named to uh, be a deputy director there. Uh, what was uh, what was your reaction at the at that appointment when you got the when you got the call? And uh, was it the president who called you or, or who it's, who made that call? to you? <laughs> it's actually deputy administrator. So that the head of NASA is called the minister. And then I had the pleasure to be the, the deputy minister. And it's yeah, the call came on the, the cell phone and I said unknown. I don't get too many you know phone calls that say unknown. And so you know, first, of course, you wonder if it's spam or something. And then they said, well, it was presidential personnel office. So that's who calls, not, the, not, the, not President Obama didn't call personally, but his uh, top, uh, you know, presidential personnel folks called. And um, it's a great funny story because, of course, I thought it was a prank. So I thought it was one of my students. You know, I'm a, I'm a long time MIT faculty member and I have a really great right. students. I thought, ah, tricky, you know, so I, so I had to sit down and I said, um, who is this again? <laughs> and uh, sit down, president president. And then after I thought it was one of my students, I said, ah, maybe that's clever. Maybe it's one of my faculty colleagues. So <laughs> when I was on the phone at first, I didn't know that it was really uh, the executive in the White House office calling. And so then I sat down and um, in short order, I understood who understood who was who was calling, and I NASA's always been the an agency uh, that I love that supported my research, and uh, just the chance and the honor to be able to serve in that capacity uh, 
yeah, was really fantastic. And I, I sure learned a lot. That's for sure. It's a very large government agency with nine field centers. And um, okay. so even though I thought I knew NASA and from the human spaceflight side, the portfolio was, was enormous. And again, it was great, great leadership training for me. Now, during your time at NASA, are there any uh, achievements or accomplishments that stand out uh, maybe at the, at the top of your mind? Whew, yeah. Um, okay. How much time do you have? So it's, it's the team sport. Yeah. Again, I was I <laughs> sure. was joining Administrator Charlie Bolt, and I'm so uh, happy to work with him. And then the close to 18,000 civil servants at NASA. So again, we're we're a huge team, and it's a huge portfolio today. 25 billion dollar budget. When when we were there, we really raised the budgets. We were proud to get to 20 billion dollars. The um, contributions I'd say I'm most most proud of. I helped really lead and articulate communicate the human journey to Mars. Now we're going to go to the moon next, but then the Mars is a horizon goal. And so really putting that strategy and plan together and articulating that and sharing that, communicating that as most important with the Congress, that's who, that's who funds NASA. And so right. you really have to have clear strategy and a plan and um, think about uh, what, what the budgets are. I learned a lot about budgeting, that's for sure. But to my strength as an aerospace engineer and a technical person also really taking the portfolio of technology and innovation bringing in a new innovation framework to to nasa and um that's one thing to do that at university i'm comfortable with that but because uh, everyone's thinking about innovation and what's the future is uh was interesting and more challenging i think we but we were pretty successful in bringing together an innovation framework to to nasa as well and spreading that throughout the other government agencies i was also huge on uh, education and stem stem education i say you know NASA is a 20 billion dollar agency for stem education so i um, really wanted to um, put that at the forefront as well that um, anything we do it captures people's um, imagination exploring finding you know new worlds out there and mm-hmm. aviation even clean aviation right here on earth let alone our earth observing satellites to look down so we really wanted to also communicate that um, that we were a place at nasa but any any agency that's working in science and technology that it's for everyone it's for all kids all girls and boys out there so that they can see themselves participating in these you know uh, this, these amazing you know exploration feats or science feats you uh, do you look at yourself as a role model uh, for for these kids uh, someone who grew up in Helena and has made it to, to NASA and now at MIT I mean it's it's, it's been an uh, extraordinary career for you but uh, I don't know, what's your reaction when people say you're you're a role model especially when you talk about the stem stem fields and, and that well, sort of thing absolutely that's absolutely uh, people need to see themselves. So, you know, you might say, that doesn't look like a rocket scientist. Well, I'm here to say, nope, this is, this is the rocket scientist now in the future. <laughs> and so, and we know from social science research that um, young students they absolutely need to see themselves. And, that, and that's not even enough. So we need role models that come in all shapes and forms and colors and, and different training. That really is diversity is really important. You need to see yourself. And then when you enter that field or you just try to get a sample of what does an aerospace engineer do? We have to have really warm, welcoming environments. That's really key. So, you know, we attract all these young superstars. I think every every little, I call every little you know, five-year-old a genius. They have infinite potential, infinite potential. But you know what? They hear no too much. Oh, I heard it all the time. You know, no, girls don't do that. Or no, someone that looks like you, you know, we don't see. So it's really important that all the kids see themselves. They're welcomed. And then we help them. So, you know, I'm a teacher. So we say, what's your dream? I want to help with climate. You know, I want to help get people to Mars. You know, I want to help in my neighborhood and help help feed folks. And I want to help with health. Whatever, all little little folks have a great dream, 
And so I think it's all of our responsibility then to help empower them, help, you know, help their dreams come true. So they really do need to, to see themselves and we have to say yes to them. Definitely, we can't say no. We have to say yes. Mm-hmm. And maybe here's some you know, advice that helps you on that path. Well, I know you've also developed uh, several groundbreaking spacesuits, including uh, the bio suit. Uh, I know this is a, a great achievement for you. Describe the bio suit and uh, how it can uh, be of benefit to space exploration. So when you go to space, if you're in the vacuum of space in low Earth orbit, when we get to the moon, you'll be in a vacuum. So we need a spacesuit to protect the person, to keep you alive. And first, we need to provide pressure because a vacuum is an unpressurized environment. And humans can't live unpressurized. So, so all spacesuits provide the pressure. And traditional designs are a gas-pressurized spacesuit. They apply a third of an atmosphere to keep you alive and your life support system, your oxygen to breathe. You have to scrub out that carbon dioxide. So the biosuit is in the research and development stage. It's not a spacesuit that's flown, but it's really pushing the art in terms of we apply the pressure directly to the skin of the person. So it's kind of like shrink wrapping an astronaut. But um, to do that, we've, um, we've patented the design, the materials. We have advanced materials and really interesting patterning that can apply that pressure directly to the skin. If we can do that, then you can imagine you can get a lot of mobility. So the difference is from a traditional approach, you're in a big balloon, it's very heavy, 140 kilos, that's about 300 pounds, you can't move around, keeps you alive. But so we've kind of flipped that design paradigm to say, well, if it's a very close fitting, tight fitting spacesuit, then I can move my arms and legs and have um, try to try to provide the mobility and a very lightweight system to enable the explorer. Then you need thermal control and then you need radiation protection when we get to the moon. So it's really the, you know, a research effort in terms of to um, advance the technologies in the entire area of, of spacesuits and life support systems. I know that uh, it, it's obviously great for space exploration, and, uh, but it's also uh, providing some advancements for, uh, for some medical challenges too uh, here on earth. Can, can you explain that? Yeah, that's, that's, that's great because, um, you know, we're going to get a few people to the moon and some people to Mars, but um, as a engineering and a designer, then if we could help with people uh, here on earth, that, you know, that that's really where my heart is as well. So we call that dual use technologies. You know, we're inspired by the extreme environments, the extreme challenges of getting people to the, the moon and Mars. But when we take a look at uh, mobility diseases here on Earth, like cerebral palsy, maybe multiple sclerosis, um, non-MD, I, I can't cure those, those diseases, but can we help? Can, as the technologist, can we provide locomotion systems and our techniques, our measurement techniques to better understand motion and mobility? And then with some of the suit designs, can we even enhance motion and locomotion? And that, that ties right back into the, the media lab and, and some breakthrough work of Professor Hugh Harris, the media lab for prosthetics and really enabling mobility. And so we kind of have a dream that let's, let's get rid of all disability, right? People aren't disabled. We're all abled, but some of us, you know, maybe can run better or walk better, jump better, but just think it's, it's really a specialty of uh, the media lab, humans, the wearable technologies, the machine interfaces. Now that's all just symbiotic. You know, I'd be, I could be wearing a smart suit, a smart coat. And if we can have the technology to measure the movement and then help provide more movement in my specialties, biomechanics, so more limb movement, more locomotion, that could be really important just for daily life activities. All right. Well, on the uh, topic, Dave, of exploration to Mars, what uh, what's the status of that uh, right now? Uh, realistically, uh, can we go there? And uh, how soon do you think we'll, we'll see uh, uh, yeah. 
space exploration on Mars. Well, if I have anything to do with it, and I, I intend to <laughs> yeah. um, help, uh, you know, help lead this, yeah, we'll become interplanetary. Realistically, the, the 2020s, this is uh, now we're 2021 already. Goodness sakes, happy, happy new year. Everyone yeah. happy. It's <laughs> going to be a great year. So the entire, this decade is really to get back to the moon, get people back to the moon. First, we'll go with landers. So be some, some before we first will orbit and uh, then we'll land and then we'll get people there in the latter half of the, this decade. As soon as we have those techno technologies down, uh, those are just going to feed forward to Mars. So we'll invest in technologies for the moon, but they also have to be applicable. As much, you know, of those resources that we can muster. Now it's government funding, it's private sources. This, this is everyone's all in on public-private partnerships. And so the 2030s, I call the, the decade of, of Mars. Now, we already are on Mars. I want to make sure that, that people are on February 18th. So get ready. Because Perseverance, we're landing on Mars in just a few short weeks. So we continue mm -hmm. our robotic exploration of Mars to keep you know, doing incredible science. And we're going there for a really important reason. What about search for life, past or present? Mars is 4.5 billion years old, just like Earth. And mm -hmm. 3.5 billion years ago, we, we think Mars had an atmosphere. It's probably warm, wet, and wonderful, like Earth. And that's no longer the case today. And so in the search for life, in the case of Mars, probably past life, that's why we're really going there scientifically. And exploration is always enhanced if you have people and our machines and rovers and robots. So it's really, again, looking for exploration of the future is combining. It's kind of like this incredible symphony of humans and machines and rovers all working together. Yeah. So, I mean, we often hear that question, is there life on Mars or is there life on other planets? And uh, you believe that there at least there was life on Mars at, uh, at one point. Um, the evidence is mounting. The evidence is mounting. And surely there's other life in the, the solar system. And now we're exo, you know, exoplanets. We're going way, way beyond our, our solar system. And um, so, yes, I think we'll definitely find the evidence of, of life uh, either on Mars. It could be past life, maybe present. We, we do. In the, and we have to look at Venus. And we're going to, uh, we have something called ocean worlds. Ocean worlds are the best candidates to look for life, again, close to home. That's kind of in our solar system because we see the chemistry. We see life's signature, if you will, oxygen and sulfur and hydrogen. We see the building blocks for life. So that's where we kind of focus our, our exploration, our scientific efforts to look and see if we see the evidence of, of life today. But surely, surely, surely with our thousands or tens of thousands of, of exoplanets, um, life exists elsewhere. Yeah, and I know it sounds maybe like the plot of a science fiction movie, but do you think someday man could uh, could exist on Mars and inhabit oh, sure. the planet? sure, humans, yeah, we'll become yeah. interplanetary, absolutely. We're going to have people on Earth, we're going to have people um, in low Earth orbit, hundreds, thousands of people living in, in space, because that's real close, that's 400 kilometers, you know, 250 miles. We'll have some people on the moon, um, right. there's good reasons to be on the moon, and then we'll have some people on Mars. So our it neighborhood, like our neighborhood is definitely growing. <laughs> but right. let me it just sounds be, like it's a, a yeah. Oh, just Great time really to clear. be. Earth okay. is the best planet by far. Earth, my go. number one planet. <laughs> it's it's here's in my image to this Earth rise. You want to live on Earth? I'm just telling you. Um, there's a reason Antarctica is not popular, right? People really don't want to live on the Moon and Mars. Sure, we want to go and explore, but Earth sure. is our home planet, and that's why it's so important that we take care of Earth as well. Right. Kind of put our technology, our, our scientific um, breakthroughs um, to take care of planet Earth as well. Right. But I know it, uh, it sounds like a great time, an exciting time to be uh, in your field, in the uh, field of space exploration and uh, some great things happening there at MIT that uh, you're going to be leading the charge for. 
Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, what a privilege and an honor to be at MIT, an honor to be in the, the media lab and to have served at, at NASA. And we just, uh, we just keep going and we have to inspire all the girls and boys out there to, to take our, to take our spots, to take over for us. All right. Well, David Newman, I know that uh, your time is important and uh, I wish we had more time. We could probably talk for hours and hours. And I know you would love uh, have a lot of stuff to talk about, but uh, we wish you all the best uh, in the new position as the director of the MIT Media Lab. And we thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Oh, Tim, thank you for your interest. My pleasure. You're, 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 you're the first guest on this podcast. Uh, so in a way, I guess you're the, the Neil Armstrong of this podcast. <laughs> there you go. You've been listening to a conversation with Helen and native Deva Newman, a former NASA deputy administrator. And one point of clarification, Newman wasn't the first female deputy administrator with NASA, but was the first engineer and scientist in the position. She'll take over as director of the MIT Media Lab, the first woman to hold that position on July 1st of 2021. Next time on McGonagall's Chronicles, Making Montana Connections. It wasn't like he just randomly picked people. He just liked to kill, and he did it every year. So it wasn't unusual for him to do two to five a year. We talk with former Great Falls Police Detective John Cameron. After a successful career on the force, his focus turned to Ed Edwards, a man he claims is responsible for some of the most high-profile serial killings in history. I invite you to follow us and give us your feedback on social media. Look for McGonagall's Chronicles on Facebook and Twitter. Until next time, I'm Tim McGonagall. Thanks for checking out McGonagall's Chronicles, making Montana connections.